We're in Ephesians, and we've been in Ephesians for a while, and one of the one of the benefits of walking through a book like the book of Ephesians is that there are going to be parts, if you just say we're walking through it, that you might skip if you wanted to make life easy. Like if you didn't want to worry about things, you didn't want to kind of cause anything, any boats to rock or things to happen, you just say, let's just kind of, let's just kind of skim over that and we'll go on to the next thing. But when you're going verse by verse, it becomes pretty evident that's what you're doing if you skip a section. And today we're actually going to talk about what has become perhaps the most controversial section of Scripture in the Bible. That wasn't always that way. In fact, for much of the time that it has been written, it was just generally accepted and we just kind of moved on. We thought about it and went on. But in the last 50 to 100 years, this particular section of Scripture has become one of, if not the most controversial parts. In fact, almost daily you could read a story or watch a news program where issues related around this particular passage are discussed. Maybe not this passage and not what it says, but the issues that it brings up. Because we're going to talk today about those big issues of gender and marriage and roles and identity and sexuality and all of that from what Scripture teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5. And when we come to a section of Scripture like this, we, we, we try to look and say, okay, now, as one pastor put it, are there timeless truths that can speak to our truthless time on issues that are of importance? So Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to put that up on the screen. We're, we're just going to read through it at the beginning, and then we're going to walk through some things, all right? And so Ephesians chapter 5, it starts in verse 22, and it says, Wives, yeah, a couple of you whispered it, all right. Wives, submit. Now, now we could stop there because there's already people that are mad. Uh, particularly some of you are like, why did you have to highlight that particular word? We could have just moved on, all right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. At least it doesn't get any more controversial, right? For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It goes on to say, He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, which is a whole other issue, so wives are to submit to their husbands in Whatever ways they feel appropriate. Is that what it says? No, some of you are already staring at me. All right. I, I got some nasty looks coming this way. I'm just going to look this way. All right. To their husbands in everything. All right. It's, I'm reading the Bible. All right. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, continues. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but simply holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, you're to love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself 
For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's quoting from Genesis there, before the fall, the ideal of what marriage is supposed to be. The mystery is profound. I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. All right, we're done, right? Just Okay, maybe not. Here's the thing I want to talk about today, okay? Oftentimes we read this passage, or people read this passage, and they jump to kind of the controversial statements, wives submit, what does that mean, what does it look like, what does it mean the husband's the head of the church, and we're going to talk about those issues, we're going to get there, all right? But before we do that, I want to set the scene, because there's an important phrase in the middle of this passage that gives us insight into the rest of the passage, and really is a phrase that comes from our understanding of the entire book of Ephesians. Now, over the last several weeks in the book of Ephesians, we have looked over and over over again at these I am statements, right? What Ephesians tells us we are. And we've had this blank every week, the I am blank. And and we've talked about what Scripture, what Ephesians teaches us about who we are in Christ, and that we're blessed and that we're loved and that we are taken care of and that we're provided for and that we are people who have a standing before God where there was no standing and that we have been adopted into his family. And in Ephesians chapter 3, there is this little phrase that we've talked about almost every week since we covered it that says that Paul prayed that the people that read this letter would would come to understand the height and the depth, the length and the width of the love of Christ, right? Right? I mean, that's part of what is there. And what we have discovered as we've moved through Ephesians is that when we begin to understand the height and the depth and the width of love that Christ has for us, then we begin to understand who we are in Christ and how we are to act as people who are followers of Christ. And what he says in Ephesians chapter 5 is that husbands, and this is important because this is the central kind of tenet, despite the fact that we we kind of focus sometimes on the wives submit, the, the central part of this whole passage is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this is what he wants us to realize, that there is a love that we understand in Christ that doesn't equate to what most people think about when they think about love. In our society, love is basically letting me do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, however long I want. As long as it makes me happy, doesn't hurt anybody. And there is this sense, and it's not just new to us. Uh, I mean, you can understand what people think about love. All you have to do is turn on the radio and listen for any amount of time or watch the latest romantic comedies. And it is this sense of fulfillment that comes to us, this sense of happiness that comes to us, which just makes me feel good or it makes me feel right or it's the good thing. It's, it's what makes my life complete. And what Paul says when he says that at the end, that, that, love, that this love of 
Christ and the church and husband and wife is a mystery. He means, we talked about this a few weeks ago, it is something that was previously unknown that has been uncovered for us to see. And what he is saying is that the true essence of love is found in what Christ did for us. And if you were basing your marriage or your relationship on any other kind of love, then you are falling short of what love is. You know, it's an interesting thing because in our society, marriage is one of those things that is kind of, um, it's not as important as it used to be, at least to the culture. People are getting married later than ever. I don't know if you know this, the average age of marriage today for a female is around 27 for their first marriage. Now, it's just a quick question. How many of you were married before the age of 27, all right, for the first time? How many of you got married for the first time after 27? Right? So there's a few. <laughs> Kelly waited until he's almost 50. That's all right. For guys, the average age now is 29 for first marriage. Now, now here's the understand. About 100 years ago, that was low 20s. And what happens, this is a general principle. The longer you wait for something, the higher the expectations can become, right? The longer you wait, like, like if, you, if you tell, if you, you think I've been waiting for this, I've been waiting for this, the longer you wait, the higher the expectations become. I heard somebody get, get like a balloon like fizzing out. Does that mean the expectations go away once you're married? What? Um, the longer you wait, the higher they become. And so people have all these rules and lists and ideas about who it is and what it looks like and what their spouse is going to be. And even to the point that there are books out there written about, you know, if he doesn't meet the rules, then you move on. What Paul would want us to know initially is this. There is within us a longing for a supernatural, unbelievable love. But the only person that can meet that need is Jesus. And if you are not secure in who you are in Him, then all the other stuff we're going to talk about today will make absolutely no sense. It is not surprising that a world that does not follow Jesus, does not pursue Jesus, does not look to Him for their guidance, doesn't understand or even despises what we're going to talk about today. Because they don't understand it from the love perspective of Christ. Here's the fill in the blank for today. It's not as fun as the other ones have been. Okay. I am responsible. Some of you might want to have your teenagers tell you that this afternoon and try to say it without you having a you know smirk on your face, right? What does it mean to be responsible? Good. Somebody else. What does it take to be, what does it mean to be responsible? You do what you're supposed to do. You What's that? Ownership. Here's what, I, here's what I mean in this, this case. We have spent weeks, and if, you, if you're the first time here, then I apologize. You, we've got all the messages online. They're, they're really good. You ought to go back and listen to them. All right. Um, we've spent all these weeks talking about the things we know about what Christ has done for us, what Christ is to us, who he has made us, our new identity in him. And then we come to this point where then he says, now you're responsible to act like you know what that means particularly in the relationships closest to you. I'm responsible. 
And he says that you're responsible, husbands, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Let's talk about that for just a moment. How did Christ love the church? Well, in this passage, he actually gives us five ways. And the first way he loved the church, it says that he loved the church as the head of the church. Now, what does that mean? What's the head mean? Where is the head on your body? Top, right? It's at the top. It's, it's, there's a place of preeminence there. there. There is that understanding of the word head, meaning the one that is over. There is authority implied there. But it also has this sense that it is the one that makes the decisions, right? That's where you, your brain is located. Those are the decisions that are you're making. Now, here's what it means for us as a church, all right? Some of you are already jumping ahead. Don't jump ahead, all right? Here's what it means for us as a church. What it means for us as a church is that Jesus is the head of the church, which means what he wants us to do, we should do. What he does not want us to do, we should not do. The decisions he wants us to make, we should make. It doesn't matter how much we've invested. It doesn't matter how long we've been here. It doesn't matter what we think we deserve. It is his church. It is his thoughts. It is his rule that matters. So this idea that, well, you know, I've given for 15 years, I have given every week to that church. They ought to listen to what I say. Or if they would just, I don't know what they're doing up there. I don't know who they're following. But if they would just listen to me, everything would be okay. Now, now it sounds ridiculous when you put it in this scene. But this isn't going to surprise you. I, I've been pastoring for 12 and a half years. I've heard that in my office. Do you know how long I have been a part of this church? I respect your membership. I do. But that's not going to change that we want to do what Jesus wants us to do. He's the head. He's the one responsible. Now, now, here's the thing that's good about that for us. It also means in this case that he takes responsibility for us. And that's important. Because we were without hope without him. Anybody here ever sinned? You know I had some people not raise their hand in the first service? <laughs> they are that opposed to raising their hand in a church, I said. How many of you ever sinned? I had a couple people. <laughs> right now you just add it all right we all sin now whose fault is it that we sin ours is it jesus fault no he made us he created us god put us here on this earth we chose to sin it is absolutely our fault that we sin do you know in my house i know this didn't happen in your house when problems happen my children are really quick to try and lay the responsibility on other people any parents out there with an amen, right? I didn't do it. Well, what about her? You are not blaming your 15-month-old for that, all right? Jesus had no part in us choosing to sin, and yet he took responsibility for our sins. As the head, as the authority, as the leader, he did something about it. Guys, when we talk about being the head of our families, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, it doesn't mean that that gives us some kind of authority that we can be a dictator and a tyrant. It means that we take responsibility for the entire family and the leadership that is there. And we step into the messes that are created, and there are messes that are created, and we lead as Christ did. Jesus loved the church's head. He Also, it tells us in this passage, and you go back and look and find these words, Jesus loved the church's Savior. 
He's the one that saved us. I mean, literally, he came and rescued us. We were without hope. We had nowhere to go. We had nothing to do. We were the only way we had was for someone to step into our world from outside of who we are, live a sinless life, and die for our sins. He is our Savior. Almost every great epic movie has this Christ figure, is what they call this Savior figure, this Messiah. Messiah figure that steps into a world that is not his world necessarily, but can only do something that the people could not do for themselves. Jesus is that for us. And as a result, the hopeless have hope. The joyless have joy. He rescues people from danger. Jesus loved the church as head and as savior but he also loved the church as giver what does it say he gave in there who loved the church and gave what himself you realize that the things you really care about you'll give to right and you realize that jesus is the one that said where your treasure is there your heart will be And it's easy to tell a lot of times what people really care about. You just follow the money. If I drove up to somebody's house and was going to visit with a family and got into the driveway, and out in the driveway was a a huge four-door pickup truck and a big bass boat and a new set of golf clubs and a golf cart and and shotguns lined the garage wall as I walked in. Then as I walked in, I walked past a wife's beat-up car that obviously wasn't running very well, and I walked in to find a house in disrepair and kids in clothes that were four or five years old and barely hanging on, what would it be obvious that the guy valued? Now, he may say, I love my family, but no. That's not what it shows. I read an article this week that was concerning for those of us that are concerned about the kingdom of God in this country, the spread of the kingdom of God and God's will here. For the third year in a row, and for the first time for the third year in a row, since the greatest economic crisis in the history of America, people that call themselves believers decreased their giving to the local church. And it is now officially the lowest percentage it has been since the Depression. Now, I'm, this isn't a message on giving, but we're going to have a little sidebar. All right? what, what's the biblical kind of standard for giving? You know, 10%, right? That's what the Old Testament says. The New Testament actually doesn't give 10%. A lot of people say, see, it says we don't have to tithe. The New Testament gives the idea that 10% ought to be the baseline, the bottom line, the minimum, and that you go above and beyond that as God blesses you. And if any of us in this room don't think we're blessed in some way because of where we live and how we live, then we are mistaken. The average American person that calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ currently is giving at a rate of about 2.7%. Now, not a math whiz, but that's a lot lower, right? And it's decreased percentage-wise every year for the last three or four years. 
There are a lot of reasons for that. There are all kinds of descriptions about how and why. There are lots of good other things to give to. There are, lot, there are people. Part of it is, to be honest with you, if you would like to take the, the issue of the house as the spiritual and the important things in our lives, most of us have been spending a lot of money on the bass boats and the four-door pickups and the golf clubs instead of on the things that have eternal significance. And here's what it says in Scripture, though. That Jesus loved the church by giving to the church. Because he loved, not because he had to. You know, there are a lot of great things you can give to. There are a lot of important things. And here's what's amazing about God's people and the way that they've responded to Jesus giving and the call on our lives to. For the last almost 2,000 years, the church has survived and thrived in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are lots of good things to give your money to out there. But ask yourself the question, if the Lord doesn't come back for 2,000 more years, how many of those are still going to be around? Because I can tell you what will be the church. Maybe not this church and none of, none of us, right? None of y'all plan on being 2,000 years old, do you? Now, here's the thing. Jesus, what does it say he gave? He gave what? His life, himself, gave himself to the church. Now, if you talk about that in a marriage relationship, sometimes you hear, well, how much more do I have to give to this relationship? Yes. Jesus loved the church as a giver. Here's the next one. Jesus loved the church as sanctifier and cleanser. Now it says in Scripture that we were dirty, filthy. Anybody here the mom of a young child or ever been the mom of a young child? Okay. You know how it's easy to tell in a group setting the mom of a young child? First, let's establish this about children. They are like sprinklers. You never know quite when they're going to go off, and you never expect the volume with which they're going to go off. Amen? Y'all hadn't seen my children, apparently, all right? I mean, I have two girls at home that are currently sick, okay? Okay. And Ava walked in yesterday, and Ava weighs 20 pounds. That's what she weighs. She's right at 20 pounds, walking around, having a good time. She was laughing yesterday, and all of a sudden, whatever reason, it hit her, and she sneezed. And about 18 pounds of snot came out. I know this is pleasant right before. Anybody you, you with me on that, right? I mean, it just happens. I mean, you just, like, how did that? But that's not even the most amazing thing. I mean, when they puke. I mean, they can hit walls, all right? And if you've ever witnessed a blowout, you know what I mean by a blowout? I picked up one of my children. I will not name him, but that narrows it to two, all right? And I went to be like, oh, and you could smell, you know, you know a little smell, something going on with you there? Let's, let's pick you up. I'm a good dad. I'm going to change. And when I picked up, I put my hand like here on his back, and there was stuff there. Now, how does that happen? I mean, the laws of pressure do not apply. So here's how you can tell a mom, okay? So let's imagine you have a little play group out there, and they're all having a good time, and the kids are all playing, and all of a sudden there's a snot out or a puke out or a blowout, 
and you'll see two or three of them running. Oh, what's going on? Well, let me go clean you up. You know how you can tell somebody that's not a mom? It's the, if they're holding them or they're close to them, it becomes the stiff arm. Is, is anybody going to help me out with this right here? Right? You got one. Hey, mom, come on. Right? But think about that. You get down and you, it takes a special human being to clean up the outs. Right? Amen? But it's the love of a mom that does that. And scripture teaches us that Jesus is the one that came when we were the nastiest and the messiest and he cleaned us up. And he took care of situations that we wouldn't normally take care of. He loved us as sanctifier and cleanser. And here's the last way Jesus loved us. As the nourisher and the cherisher. Now, a lot of the descriptions in the New Testament of how a husband should love his wife, have this understanding of nourishing and cherishing your wife. Making her feel safe and secure, validated, in a way that she blossoms and grows into the lady that God intends for her to be because of the encouragement that you have been giving her. In fact, there is this almost picture of like a garden, okay? And, and that that, that in our homes and our families, it's like a garden. And we, we take out the stuff that needs to be taken out, but we also have to take care of it and tend it and make sure. You know, I, I love a garden. I don't have a garden because it's too much work. Right? But I love, I love people that do that. You know, I think that's awesome. But it's a lot of work. But it's amazing to me. I'm still amazed. You know, in, in technology field, all that stuff. When you walk out and somebody that's got a garden or you walk out on a farm and you know they've been tending it for months and they've been doing the soil and they've been fertilizing and they've been taking care of it, even to the point of being uh, attention to individual plants. And when you see that plant start to bloom, it's just an amazing moment. Jesus nourishes us. He cherishes us, and he attempts to put us in a place where we can bloom. So what does that mean for us? Well, here's the natural thing. We follow the way Jesus loved with what the Scripture teaches us to do. And for wives, at the beginning of this passage, it's very simple that it says that wives submit. Now, what I think is interesting is at the beginning of the passage it says submit. At the end of the passage it uses a different word, but I think it's the same concept and it's the word respect. And so what does that mean? What, what do you mean by wife submit? Here's what it does not mean. First of all, it does not mean that in any way women are inferior or less intelligent or less competent than men. That is not what is being discussed here. In the cross of Jesus Christ, he proved, and in Paul's other writings, that all men and all women are created equal in the sight of God. In fact, the Bible was revolutionary in that understanding of women for centuries. There is nothing different there. It also doesn't say that they're less intelligent. In fact, most of us men realize very quickly in a marriage relationship that we got the short end of the intelligence stick. Amen? We realize it doesn't have anything to do with who's more intelligent. It also doesn't have anything to do with who's more competent. Sometimes people will use this verse and say, listen, that means women in the workplace. This has nothing to do with women in the workplace. Nothing. 
Does that mean a woman can be? Absolutely. I'm not, this has nothing to do with that. This is in a marriage relationship, and we're going to talk about what it means in that, but it does not have anything to do with a glass ceiling or a workplace or social organization. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It also means that women, it doesn't mean that women can't have their own thoughts. First of all, it would be fruitless for us to try to say that. And secondly, I love the phrase, I mean, God brings two people together. In fact, there is this, um, this understanding of the relationship between men and women called complementarianism. And there are a lot of people get worked up about what that means. But, but the general understanding of that is, it's just like you have a right hand and a left hand. And you have two hands, and they both can do things separately of each other. But to do things really well, you need them both working together. Women are going to have their understandings and their thoughts. In fact, I was going to get to the, the, one of the quotes I love is, if there are two people in life that always think the same way about every issue, one of them is unnecessary. Right? It doesn't mean also that wives can't influence their husband. Listen, guys, we need all the help we can get. Amen? I mean, I have flaws, I have issues. It means that and I need Susan to help me. And over our 15 years of marriage, she has shown me time and time again of areas that I need to talk in a different way or act in a different way or think in a different way or wake up about something. I mean, there are these moments when she can speak into my life that she can help me to see things. And in fact, this doesn't mean that women stay silent always about the flaws that we have as men. Because we have flaws. Women, when you married a man, you married a flawed human being. Amen? It's okay to say amen, women. It is. You did. And there are times when you're going to see that. But here's the thing. Here's what I think it means by submit and respect. It means that we start by focusing on those areas that you respect about your partner before you jump to the areas that you're critical of. There are areas, if you have a spouse, or if you are thinking about a spouse in the future, listen, if you're single here today, and you're thinking about marriage, and what's going to happen in the future, you're not going to find a guy that makes every criteria on your checklist. It is not going to happen. And if you do, you will find out about two minutes after the ceremony that that didn't happen. Something will surface. But it's that you spend time helping to focus your mind on who he is that you respect. The natural tendency is to move to what you want to criticize or complain or disrespect or disavow. But you don't. You focus on what you do. And you spend time praising your husband about that, especially when it comes to public. You don't ever run your husband down in public. Puts him in a really bad place. The desire to defend himself is overridden by his desire not to make you look bad. So you don't run him down in public. You don't run him down to your friends. You talk about the things you respect about him first. And you fight that urge to continually bring up those things that are bothering you. You know, the Bible talks about not doing that. And I'm about to tell you something that got me in hot water in the first service. Okay, But it's from the Bible. In Proverbs, it talks about women that continually point out the failings, the difficulties, the problems with their husband. And it says that that kind of woman is like a dripping faucet. 
Anybody have a dripping faucet in their house? So you're like, yes, and my husband has not fixed it. I have been on him and 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 on him. You know how annoying that can be, right? Just drip, drip, drip. There's another passage that says, it is better to live on the corner of your roof than in the house with an irritating wife. Don't you love the Bible? It's just straightforward and honest. And so to some of you women, I I will say this as lovingly as I can. You need to watch being the drip, drip, drip or the one that makes your husband want to climb up on the roof. All right? Now, we have a word for that, don't we? We have a word for continually over and over again pointing out flaws and deficiency and all that, right? Nagging, right. We have that word. There are other words, I guess, but nagging is the word. And when you come to this word, this is what you also have to think of, okay? I want you to think of the Trinity. Now, who's a part of the Trinity? It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a quick question. Any one of those greater than the other? No, they're all equal, all the same in power and authority and strength and all of that, right? And yet Scripture says that Jesus submitted to the Father's will. It wasn't because he had to. It wasn't because he was less than. It wasn't because he was inferior. It was out of love for us and a desire to glorify the Father. Here's what it tells us as husbands. Basically, it tells us to lead with love. Can I tell you that that people get all worked up And I understand the reason. Like I said earlier, people that aren't followers of Jesus Christ, those those first two words of chapter 5, verse 22 are daunting and difficult. Even for those that love Jesus, it's uncomfortable to talk about. I mean, I joked about the first service, but I got some stares in the first service. And I got some stares here. But that's not the most difficult part of this whole passage. I'm not saying it's not difficult. It's just not the most difficult. This is the most difficult. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. You see, the Scripture teaches us that you are the head of the household. Now, I don't care whether you think you are. I don't care what you think about what that means. I don't care what you've read in the newspaper lately. Scripture says that the husband is the head of the family. The question is not whether you're the head of the family. The question is whether or not you are going to be good at it. And the truth is most of us have men are not very good at it except outside or except with the help of Jesus Christ leading us through it. In fact, most of us would rather stand by and not take responsibility and it's been that way from the very beginning. Who was the first person to take a bite of that fruit? Who was it? Eve, right? It was Eve's fault, right? She was Eve. Where was Adam? He was like off in a distant land somewhere. Where was Adam? He was right beside her. So do you really think he didn't know what was going on? In that moment, Adam should have stepped up instead of being passive and weak and saying, no, I don't want to help. He should have said, don't eat that. Remember, God said not to do that. Instead, he waits, she eats, he participates, and here we are. Right? He should have led 
He should have taken responsibility. He should have shown leadership. And guys, this is one of those things that we are called to as men, to stand up and to take responsibility. And we are among a generation of men that have decided they don't want responsibility. There are more children today born out of wedlock for the first time in the history of the world than in marriage in this country. Dads just moving out of their kids' lives. Some dads that are right there in the house with them but have emotionally disconnected and are in an extended adolescence where they won't take responsibility for anything or anybody. They don't want it. Scripture says we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. We are to spend every ounce of who we are under the leadership of Jesus Christ, giving our lives to our family, protecting our families, leading our families with a love that is sacrificial and right and just. Listen, I, I cringe at the thought of the responsibility that I have in raising my four children. And Susan and I partnering together to see that happen. I cringe at the responsibility. But nobody else is going to do it for me. And under the leadership of Jesus Christ, it is the task to which he has called me to that is the greatest in my life. We take responsibility for what we do. We take responsibility for our family. We fight for them what is right and just. We do things that matter. We stand up when it's time to stand up. We don't let them just make decisions because they're kids and they know best. Because guess what? They don't. We understand that under the leadership of God and what he has done for us, that our families and our wives are worth fighting for. We love our wives, not just the thought of marriage. There are some guys that are in marriage and they just love marriage because of the privileges that marriage brings them, but they don't care a thing about their wife. You love her. You develop your friendship with her. Man, I am thankful to God that Susan is my best friend. We, you know, one of the things I look back on my life, we're, we're coming into that point in my life where I have been best friends with Susan longer than I wasn't. First of all, that means I'm getting older, all right? Susan and I met when we were 18 years old and became really good friends about the time we were 20. And as I think about it, I spent part of my teen years with Susan being great friends with her. I spent my 20s being really good friends, best friends with her. I've spent my 30s being best friends with her. And my goal is to spend my 40s and my 50s and my 60s and my 70s and my 80s being best friends with her because she is the person in my life I care most about spending time with. I love the friendship that is there. But if you don't, it's going to get old at some point. Because guess what you're going to do with your spouse? Spend more time with them than anybody else. Over the length of your life. And you love your family with everything you've got. You know why I'm convinced that this passage of Scripture is so controversial? Because no matter who you are, when you read it, you're convicted about your responsibility in this world. In light of what Jesus Christ has done, in light of what Katie's saying about the fact that we are loved, that he cherishes us, that he has compassion for us, that he has saved us, 
It is our job to be responsible to the people he's put in our lives to be an example of that love to them. And the world can get away with all kinds of love, but we are responsible for loving like Jesus. Let's pray together.